For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. For new folks, I'm Tygen, the guiding teacher, and we have. Okay, I'm Tygen, the guiding teacher at Ancient Dragon Sengate. Welcome, everyone, and I'm very happy to have as our speaker this morning Zenjin Klein's Capo. Uh, many of you have heard her speak here before, but for those who haven't, uh, Florence is a transmitted. Uh, teacher in the Suzuki Roshi lineage. She's also a Unitarian Universalist minister. She was a professional botanist and environmentalist and conservationist, amongst uh, her many other accomplishments. She co edited a wonderful book called The Hidden Lamp, which is a record of a great women teachers and practitioners in India, China, Tibet. Mm-hmm. Tibet. Japan, Korea, and the United States with wonderful commentaries by contemporary women teachers. It's a really wonderful source book for all things and for our great uh, heritage of women teachers. So, um, I'm so happy that you're here. Uh, thank you for speaking today. Tygen did not mention that we are also old friends. We connected at uh, Green Gulch Farm many years ago, sometime in the 1990s. And uh, part of how we connected was through a mutual commitment to environmental justice and climate justice and peace in the world. I'm really happy to be here with you again after a more than three-year hiatus from Ancient Dragons and Gate in person. I've been with you on that little screen there but I haven't been with you in person. And I really want to thank Hogetsu for uh, hosting all of us in this beautiful space. It's very serene. It's very, very lovely. So thank you. And that's part of what makes it possible, of course, to be with you in person. Can everyone hear me all right? Okay, good. What you're going to hear today is partly about my life as a conservation botanist. I know there are a few scientists in this crowd, so perhaps you'll enjoy this. We are in the season of seeds ripening. And so I'd like to begin this talk about seeds with a favorite quote, a favorite quote of mine, from a book of collected talks by Zenke Blanche Hartman, the late abbess of San Francisco Zen Center, also the first woman abbess, as far as I know, of any major Zen center uh, in the West. She wrote a little book, or a book was collected of her talks called Seeds for a Boundless Life, Zen Teachings from the Heart. Blanche died in 2016. I have come to deeply appreciate this little book because Blanche was someone I admired greatly at San Francisco Zen Center. She was an old communist, also very politically active all her life, along with her husband, Lou. 
they practice with such unwavering dedication. And Blanche had a way of recognizing the depth of the Dharma in people that others would overlook or denigrate. People who didn't fit neatly into the usual definition of a good Zen student. So her memory is very dear to me. This quote begins with a memory of her own from her first encounter with a Zen teacher in a chapter in the book called Blooming into Ourselves. I loved the first time I went to Sokoji Temple in San Francisco for Zazen instruction. This was years ago. The instructor was Katagiri Roshi, who was then a young monk, Katagiri Sensei, who had come up from Zen Shushiji in Los Angeles to help Suzuki Roshi because many Americans were wanting to sit Zazen. This was probably late 60s, maybe even earlier. There he was, one person in this temple with a Japanese congregation who needed some help as well. This young monk came up from Los Angeles to help, and he was giving Zazen instruction. In the course of it, he said something like, we sit to settle the self on the self and let the flower of our life force bloom. That was another one of those moments that have deeply moved me, and it has stayed with me forever. She goes on to say, how do we let the flower of this life force bloom if there is nothing to gain from Zen practice? If this is it, our life as it is, and there is nothing to get, and we are complete as we are, where does effort come from if there is no goal? What's the purpose of it if there's no goal? Answering her own question, she writes, it's sort of like, what is the effort that daffodils make in order to bloom? <coughs> Something is happening there under the ground in the dark that results in the bloom that we see when we walk down the path. And I'll just say, I walked outside today in that really beautiful garden, appreciating all those blooming flowers. It finds this bloom within itself somehow. It comes from its very nature. This bloom that we see as beautiful, it's beautiful from the beginning. It's completely there. It just needs conditions around it to bloom. In Zen, practice centers and teachers provide the conditions to help Buddhas bloom. But really, it's all there. It's all completely present right with you from the beginning. Let me just read that again. It's all completely present right with you from the beginning. This is a deep understanding within Soto Zen. Very important to our particular lineage to know that it is right with you from the very beginning. This is our faith. In faith that we are Buddha, we enter Buddha's way. In faith, we can bloom fully in the most appropriate way. We practice this practice. And so Blanche lived her life in just that way, humbly, in faith that we are Buddha. She continued to water the daffodils she saw all around her, continued planting seeds that have now spread across the world, her students, her students' students, her students' students' students, students, students. 
and all the people that she touched, like me. One of the people that she influenced was the one-of-a-kind Zen teacher and author Darlene Cohen, who practiced all her life with, uh, or all her adult life really, with severe pain and crippling from a rheumatoid arthritis. And that became the heart of her teaching, teaching right from her own suffering to others, to relieve the suffering of others. She passed away in 2011. I was able to study with Darlene years ago and benefit from her books. And I now teach some of her powerful ways of working with pain for those who live with physical challenges. And I'll be teaching an online six-week class this fall. This is the third time I've done it through San Francisco Zen Center, uh, based partly on these teachings of Darlene. And again, I can feel the, the sense of these seeds that are planted generation after generation, even though I'm not formally within Blanche's lineage or Darlene's lineage, still I am so deeply affected by their lives and their teachings. Katagiri to Blanche, Blanche to Darlene, Darlene to me. And now I try to offer those seeds to others through my teaching and through my working uh, with people living with uh, pain and illness. And they'll carry those on too, nurturing them in the grounds of their lives and perhaps helping others. When you plant seeds, you never know how or whether or uh, what they will be when they grow. I'm sure Katagiri would be very gently surprised to know that someone read his words, remembered by a beginning student who went on to become an abbess nearly 50 years ago, and heard today in this Zenda. In a way, Katagiri is alive right now in this Zenda through his words. Because I am here sitting with you for the first time since the, before the pandemic, I won't say the pandemic's over, I think about the seeds that have been planted and nurtured here in Chicago. For so long, the Zen students, including Hogetsu, who invited Taigen to come teach here from California, the many, many people who have flowed through the doors of, or the gate of ancient dragon Zen gate, who received Zazen instruction here, and perhaps never appeared again, but who have not forgotten, just as Blanche did not forget that first time. The people who have received Buddha's precepts through this gate, who wear Buddha's robe, or who manifest the Dharma in all the ways that you do through your work and your life, planting seeds. And this is a beautiful blossoming here. This metaphor of planting and nurturing seeds of the Dharma and of goodness is quite ancient, all the way back probably farther back than this, but most well-known within the, um, the Yogacara teachings, some of the earlier Mahayana teachings of the Alaya Vijnana, or the uh, storehouse consciousness, where the seeds are referred to as bija. I don't want to go too far down the road <laughs> of Yogacara philosophy this morning, but I do think it's important to uh, 
forgive the continued botanical allusions in this talk, uh, to know the roots of this teaching, at least a little. In the Yogacara, there are eight types of consciousness. And the eighth is this storehouse consciousness, the Alaya Vijnana. You could think of it as the ground, the ground of consciousness. It is the foundation of all the other consciousnesses and holds all of our past sense impressions as seeds, bija. Our very perception of reality, the reality that we think is real and out there, comes from this storehouse consciousness. Yogacara scholars also believe that the Alaya Vijnana was the seat of Buddha nature, that just as we were hearing from Blanche, um, in other words, Buddha nature is basically the fundamental nature of all beings, the ground of all beings. It is because we are fundamentally Buddhas, and I know this might be a little hard to believe when we see all the imperfections of our lives, but because we are fundamentally Buddhas, that we are able to practice at all. In some schools of Buddhism, Buddha nature is understood to exist as something like a seed or a potentiality, while in others it is completely present, even if we aren't aware of it. Buddha nature is not something we have, but what we are. Another great teacher that was very influenced by this understanding was Thich Nhat Hanh. And here is uh, his very famous quote about watering seeds. I think you can hear the you can hear the echoes of that Yogacara teaching in what he says. Your mind is like a piece of land planted with many different kinds of seeds, seeds of joy, peace, mindfulness, understanding, and love, seeds of craving, anger, fear, hate, and forgetfulness. These wholesome and unwholesome seeds are always there sleeping in the soil of your mind. The quality of your life depends on the seeds you water. If you plant tomato seeds in your gardens, tomatoes will grow. Just so, if you water a seed of peace in your mind, peace will grow. When the seeds of happiness in you are watered, you will become happy. When the seed of anger in you is watered, you will become angry. The seeds that are watered frequently are those that will grow strong. So now I'm going to switch gears a little bit and tell you a story about seeds from my own life. This is, this is from a, an essay I wrote uh, a number of years ago called Seeds, um, or at least it'll be based on that essay. And to give you a little background for the story, um, from about uh, 1994 to 1997, uh, I worked as a botanist working for the Nature Conservancy on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation uh, up in Washington State in eastern Washington. And among other things, Hanford is the world's largest nuclear waste site. It's the place that the uh, plutonium from uh, for the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki was uh, made in a uh, um, nuclear reactor. And there are 11, there were at one point 11 nuclear reactors there along the Columbia River. 
And uh, there was 120 square miles set aside, locked up in 1943, I think. Um, And not surprisingly, although much of that land has been disturbed by all of this activity for our weapons programs, which are now, everything's uh, pretty much shut down there now, and it's it's also the world's largest uh, cleanup project. Uh, There's also a lot of land that was um, basically untouched for now, what, close to 80 years. And so I was hired by the Nature Conservancy along with a lot of other people to do uh, uh, biological surveys in the areas that were really quite pristine at Hanford. And although it sounds like a really strange job, it was actually quite extraordinary to be in a place where there'd been no grazing and no um, development, no agriculture of any kind for all that time. And the plant communities were intact in many ways and full of surprises, including two previously undescribed species of plants that we found, uh, my field partner and I, as we were working. So this is a little story partly about um, one of those species. So this was uh, describing a time, uh, again, um, a number of years ago, this would have probably been sometime in the early 2000s. Um, I'm here with three other botanists and we've come to collect seed of Omtanum wild buckwheat, which grows here and nowhere else in the world. Bright yellow clusters of buckwheat flowers wave gaily at our feet. Scattered around us are hundreds of plants their small gray leaves perfectly adapted to the drying winds clinging to the bare pumice gravel of the ridgetop just above callous slopes that plunge hundreds of feet down to the Columbia River. Amtanum wild buckwheat is uh, a threatened species on the Endangered Species Act. It wasn't, of course, when we found it, but because of its rarity, it was immediately proposed uh, as a federally listed species. And so we closely monitored the population. Every year, a few of the older plants die, but no new plants replace them. It's a long-lived perennial, so uh, some of those plants may be more than 100 years old. Although each plant, and it's this cushion, it's kind of like a mass of gray leaves. Although each plant produces thousands of seeds, and although every spring we find the tiny gray seedlings in the reddish pumice of the ridgetop in all the years that they have been monitored at this point, only two seedlings have survived the hotter, drier summers than where the time that this plant evolved. Of course, there are um, undoubtedly many reasons why this plant is declining global warming, invasion of weeds, perhaps the end of an evolutionary road. Although I think um, one of the biggest effects is actually the uh, catastrophic effects of global warming um, causing increased fires. So this is an environment that would have had fires, uh, but not that frequently, and certainly not an environment that's that barren. Uh, But there have been some terrible fires just since we found these plants for the first time in 1995. And in fact, um, in um, about, um, what would it have been, 20, 
2017 or so, there was a big fire that actually took out 75% of the population and the plants don't come back after fire. So if this continues, which it is likely to, one day there will be no more Umtanum wild buckwheat on Umtanum Ridge. And my children, and I do think of them as my children, I have no biological children, so these new species are kind of my children. So lovely here in the afternoon sunlight at this moment that I was remembering, will be gone. So on that afternoon, we were there to collect seed. So we had earlier in the year, we had taken wedding veil fabric and tied it around these tiny little flowering stems to catch the falling seeds before they were blown away by the ceaseless winds. And we were back at that point to harvest. And then a few days later, I took the seeds to the Berry Botanic Garden in Portland, which maintains a seed bank of the wild plants of the Pacific Northwest. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a seed bank, but it doesn't look like much. It's a windowless drying room with metal racks, a few freezers, not unlike the ones you see on the back porches of farmhouses, but it's designed to keep seeds alive for hundreds of years, with all kinds of backup systems, temperature and humidity carefully monitored and elaborately protected. This place, this very simple, humble place, holds like an ark the genetic diversity of the deserts and rainforests and high mountains of the Pacific Northwest. Perhaps in my lifetime, Amtan and wild buckwheat will be gone from that place where it's grown for who knows how many thousands of years. But if all goes well, its seeds will still be here, nestled in little labeled packets in a dark freezer, waiting for a better time when someone can bring them back into the light again. I've been a rare plant botanist uh, since uh, almost from the time that I first graduated from college, which was about 1986. My job in various forms have been to find and conserve some of the rarest plants on the planet. And I've spent a lot of my adult life wandering in wild places, all my senses open, looking and imagining where a rare plant might grow and what it might need to continue to thrive in that particular place. I think it's ancient work, not unlike the work of the women and men who once knew how to find hidden plants for food and healing. Sometimes it seems like the rare plant steps forward to be found, even invites itself to be found, like a dance or a conversation. But to be a conservation biologist requires an ongoing con conversation and dialogue with despair. No one I know in this field is immune to it. It takes enormous effort, years of work to protect even one population of a rare species, either animal or plant, and so many others disappear every day. My friends who are ecologists have watched places they've studied and loved go under the bulldozer, my friend who uh, was uh, my field partner who, uh, with me, found Amtan Wild Buckwheat continues to work in eastern Washington. And although I haven't been there for a number of years now, she says 
all these places we worked that were so pristine are now full of weeds burning and burning every year or under vineyards. If you ever eat, uh, drink Washington wines, a lot of Eastern Washington has been converted to vineyards. A friend who is a herpetologist goes out on rainy spring nights to throw frogs off country roads, knowing that hundreds of others will be run over before dawn. So as the scope and and speed of climate change becomes clearer, I realize that those many rare plants that I have worked so hard to protect that are only known from a single place or a handful of places may not make it through this change. Unlike animals or more widespread plants, they really have nowhere to go and no particular way to move north or up as the land dries and warms. Many of them will wake out one by one, except for the little packets of seeds resting in their dark wombs in the seed banks of the world, or a few carefully tended plants in some botanical garden, placeholders for once wild species and possibilities for the future. So on that day that I took the seeds to the Berry Botanic Garden, I was standing in my friend's office, the director of the garden. And he went out to uh, do something or other. And I noticed an, an old seed conservation newsletter sitting on his desk. On the cover was a series of oval photographs, old brown portraits of nine men and women each very solemnly posed, like those old photographs from the early 20th century. When Ed was, uh, while he was gone, I picked up the newsletter and I discovered that those photographs are of the nine caretakers of the great seed bank of Leningrad. Does anybody know this story? Has anyone heard the story of the seed bank of Leningrad? Oh, good. I'm glad I'm the one to tell you. It's an extraordinary story. Before the beginning of World War II, a place deep in the heart of Leningrad housed what was then, gives me shivers just saying this, what was then the world's largest collection of plant seeds and tubers, more than 200,000 different species and varieties, including thousands of varieties of cultivated fruit plants. During the war, you may know this part, Hitler's army besieged the city for nearly 900 days. It's a long time, almost three years. By the end of the siege, one and a half million people had died in that city, almost all from exposure and starvation. The scientists who maintained the seed bank could have eaten what was stored there and survived. Instead, mindful of the heritage in their hands, knowing what it would mean to the world if these unique species and cultivars died out, especially the food plants. They hid them and cared for them as the famine deepened. Nine scientists, men and women, died of starvation before the siege ended. The collection survived and is still one of the most important seed collections in the world. And those were the portraits of the nine who had died. 
This story has stayed with me as a talisman, a koan, a resonant mystery. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's pretty easy to feel pessimistic about humanity and our future. But what is this? Who were Alexander Stutkin, Lilia Rodina, and their colleagues who died rather than consume their gifts for the future? There's something in this for me, some way of holding the despair that I can feel so easily. A long time ago, I heard Randy Hayes, founder of the Rainforest Action Network, say that it is time for each of us to adopt one species, one place, something we care about, and make a commitment. I'll care for you. I'll carry you through the storm as best I can. And I think I think there's a lot of wisdom in this. That each of us, when a crisis approaches, really has to consider how we will respond. And the deepest and most effective response is the one that is truest to who we are and to what we love. Sometimes I think the environmentalist movement might have gone a little stray in its emphasis on um, the danger rather than the love. That actually um, what we love is what we protect, is what we are committed to. Whether it's the love of our family or the love of a place or the love of an animal species, this is really fundamental to who we are. So for me, all my life, I've been drawn to what I call the green world, where speech is in leaf and in flower and in seed. And when I think about seeds, I begin to feel a way through that's true for me. And when those scientists in Leningrad kept the seeds safe, they protected the past, thousands of years of breeding and evolution that each seed and tuber represented, and the future, we who would need those seeds someday. And seeds come in many forms. So, of course, there's seeds of plants. There are seeds of language. I think of the people, now I live in Champaign-Urbana, and there are people, there's actually a, a part of the linguistics department that is focused on endangered languages mm-hmm. and how to keep those languages alive. Seeds of culture, the artists, the musicians, all those that uh, keep our culture alive. <laughs> Seeds of the Dharma, right? We are each keeping that seed alive. You know, there would be no living Dharma if it had died out sometime between the Buddha and now. Imagine trying to, if you've ever, if you can remember the time before you came and had Zazen instruction and you were trying to read books about Buddhism, you could only get a a faint echo of what this practice really is, right? We really have to be doing this together, embodied. As Darlene Cohen used to say, body to body practice, 
That's what we have to do. Or as we say in, in Zen, more conventionally, warm hand to warm hand. This is very important. And so each generation has kept the Dharma alive for the next generation. And each of us in this room represents one of these generations or multiple generations of the Dharma. And you might think, oh, yeah, I just started coming here to Ancient Dragon. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not part of that lineage. But you are. You're keeping it alive. The way you support this place, the way you bring your body here or online, uh, these are all ways of continuing to plant the seeds of the Dharma from the past and into the future. Maybe you've heard some talks while you've been here on, you know, Dogen's uh, Being Time, where he makes it very clear that this kind of linear idea isn't true anyway. And seeds really point to that, since they contain both the past and the future. So my life changed in front of me as the world changed. It became harder and harder for me to primarily give my life to conservation biology because I saw, again, this tremendous effort that it took. But in the face of climate change, it, it began to feel less meaningful. So because of that, I had to expand my definition of what it meant to keep the seeds going. So I had worked with one, pop, you know, a few populations to try to keep them alive. But now, as my work of being a Unitarian Universalist minister, being a Zen teacher, uh, you know, I continue to gather the seeds of a town and wild buckwheat. I'm still connected to that work there. But I also gather the seeds of what it means to go deep into silence or what it means to listen with a willing heart or to support community during hard times. Some people have kept alive old music or understand the mathematics of quantum mechanics or know the deep language of poetry. All these beautiful ways we have of being human. Whatever's ahead, I know that the world will always need people who are willing to carry what we know as a gift, holding our seeds close to our bodies, hiding them deep in the ground, offering them quietly from hand to hand, sharing them, guarding them as the storm rages over us, as they did in Leningrad, so that one day they may bloom again. You know, when I think about those nine, I think, yes, that's the definition of a bodhisattva. Someone who is willing, the cost of their own life, to protect the seeds of goodness for the future. And that's what seeds know how to do. This is what we can learn from them. They know how to carry their message through every kind of disaster. I wanted to tell you a, another story this morning, one that I learned long after I had written that essay. I learned it from a young man, Native American man, who came to Champaign-Urbana 
before the pandemic, he and, a, and another young man who'd been active at Standing Rock. And uh, he uh, is a member of the Ponca Nation. And he told this really incredible story, which um, I had to go, I needed to make sure I had the, the story straight. So I went and looked it up uh, before this talk to make sure that I had, had remembered accurately. This was a while ago. Um, and this is the story. It's a pretty incredible story. It's about um, the Ponca people and the sacred red corn of their culture. Remember, you know, corn came from the new world, from the native peoples of the new world. So the Ponca originally lived in Nebraska, near the Niobrara River. And in 1877, and they, and they grew corn along the banks of the rivers, during, in the floodplains of the rivers. In 1877, they were forcibly removed to Oklahoma, as were so many tribal nations. And it was in May of 1877. So it was after their corn seeds had been planted for the year. So they couldn't take their seeds and their corn hadn't ripened yet. And so uh, they, many of them died on the way to Oklahoma, and once they got there, it's actually called the Ponca Trail of Tears. There are so many trails of tears across this country. This is one. So they completely lost these varieties of corn, including the red corn, which was the most sacred, for uh, way more than 100 years, 130, 40 years it was believed that they were gone. So in the early 20th century, there was a Ponca tribal member who, um, after his brother died of cancer, lived in Oklahoma around the oil fields, worked in, worked in the, that industry, and so many people he knew who were tribal members were dying young, of various diseases, and he wanted to bring back the traditional foods because he felt like that would help heal his people. So he went searching for these ancient corn seeds to see if he could find them again and bring them back. And what's interesting is it turned out that they had been protected all this time by other tribes. So he found a Lakota family in Craig, Nebraska, whose ancestors had harvested the Ponca red corn for the banks of the Niobrara River in the fall of 1877, after the Ponca had been removed. And they had continued to plant and harvest the corn to the present day. So he brought it back to the tribal lands in Oklahoma and began to grow it. And then in 2010, 11, 12, you probably all remember the Keystone XL pipeline. It was supposed to go through Nebraska. And a unique organization formed. Actually, this, this is an organization that's active throughout the West in various ways, called the Cowboys and Indians Alliance. And it's an alliance of native and non-native people 
ranchers, farmers, tribal members, working to protect the lands, right? This is another, another uh, manifestation of this commitment to the future. And there was some farmers in Nebraska, in the traditional territory of the Ponca, been there for a long time, generations. And the Keystone XL pipeline was supposed to go across their land. And they vowed that they would do whatever they could to stop it. And they became part of this Cowboys and Indians Alliance. And someone came up with the idea of taking that sacred red corn and planting it in the fields where the Keystone XL pipeline was supposed to run. And, and I think it was um, 2013, uh, a whole group of volunteers, native and non-native people, came to this farm and planted the red corn in its place where it had originally grown. And then they made the argument that this was now a uh, culturally important place that could not be disturbed by the pipeline. And the uh, farmers sued to stop the pipeline going over their land. And every year they came back as the fight for Keystone and against Keystone XL continued and planted corn at that place together. And in 2021, after Joe Biden was elected, Keystone XL was stopped. The permit was revoked, and that land remains without a pipeline. So I love that story. And this young man had actually been there, uh, you know, during one of the plantings. And when he told that story, it just, it just said everything to me about what it means to uh, take care of the past and the future through seeds. And that one Native family who was not even from that tribe kept those seeds going year after year after year. Not in a seed bank, but planting them every year, keeping them alive for the future. So it's late summer again, and the seeds of obtain wild buckwheat are there on that ridge as they've been for so long above the Columbia River, beginning to ripen. Once years ago, as I was involved with the planting of those seeds, I held a, a few hundred seeds in the palm of my hand. If you've ever uh, seen buckwheat groats, that's, it's actually in the same family. So it's these little tiny, tiny, uh, like miniature buckwheat growth. So I could pull them all in a palm of my hand. And then suddenly the wind, which always blows there, caught and scattered them. And they flew away like sparks, like prayer flags flung up against the sky. And then they tumbled to that waiting ground. So that's where my faith lies in those seeds. Because I opened this talk with a quote from Blanche Hartman, I wanted to close with another quote 
also from seeds for a boundless life. I was really uh, surprised when I came across this in uh, this very, this is a book of Dharma teachings, and this is uh, part of what she chose to share. So this was about the gift of life, right? Because we're also, we also come from seeds. Along with this gift of life comes some responsibility for supporting life, participating in taking care of this fabulous gift of life on this earth that we've been given. And this is a particularly important now in our history, as we find that the way we are living is endangering the continuity of life. We see that we have to make some changes in the way we use fossil fuels because we are in danger of poisoning ourselves and changing the climate of this earth sufficiently to make it uninhabitable, at least by creatures such as we are. There is a responsibility to having received this gift of life, and that is to take care of it in whatever way we can. I heard this quote some time ago. Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world at once, but of stretching out to meet, to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. So we find out where we can make whatever contributions we can to the care of the earth and the other beings with whom we share it. So that's what I wanted to offer you today in this time of ripening seeds. And I think we have some time for conversation. I hope we can have conversation. I would love to hear anything that this brought up for you or connections. Thank you so much, Sachin. We'll start by invoking Blanche because she's very important to this saga in a couple of ways. And also, she was a scientist. She was a, a chemist before she became a Zen student. Uh, but uh, two things. I I was Blanche's first Chousseau at Tassajara in 1990. Oh, I didn't know that. And also, Blanche was very important in bringing to the West the sewing of Buddha's robes, like this one. And our um, teacher, Hogesu, uh, has carried that on. Study for Blanche. Seeds. Can you feel the seeds that were planted that are still growing? I just want to make a quick announcement. We're going to forego having a cleaning period to allow more time to have a discussion with the plant. So I will add that uh, we have we have the the dragons in the cloud, and then then in the room I've got the room uh, spotlighted. Uh, so if you're if you're on Zoom, uh, please use the hand raise function. That way I'll be able to see you because there are more than I can see on the screen. And maybe Zenshin and Taigen will see the people in the room. I'll I'll try to see everybody. But anyway, if if you've been waiting to to talk and you're not getting called on, please just squawk up. Squawk up. Thank you for a really rich and thought-provoking talk on so many different levels. I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier, just to gain some clarification. Um, you were talking about Buddha nature. You were also talking about, you know, seeds and watering seeds and um, the conditions for seeds. And I was wondering if um, you see Buddha nature as conditioned or unconditioned. 
Oh, well, that's quite a question. <laughs> so I would say, uh, I, so as, we, as you know, within Soto Zen, we say practice enlightenment, right? That, it, that that's actually the manifestation of Buddha nature right there. And from the, and Dogen himself said this, wrote this, from the very first time we sit, from the very first time we manifest practice, it's there. And so I think, Actually, um, it's interesting. I would. I, I think I'm not surprised you're asking for clarification because I think what Thich Nhat Hanh offers in that quote I read is a little bit different. It's a little bit more, you know, do this and this will grow, right? And that's true too, right? In in our relative lives, no doubt about it. You know, maybe you've heard the story. There's, I think it's. It's called a Native American story. I don't think it actually is, but about the two wolves that, that, you know, which wolf you feed will determine, you know, whether it's a wolf of goodness and kindness or the wolf of hatred grows. There's truth in that. But there's also truth that there's uh, something fundamentally there, no matter what. I, I, you want to add anything back to that, Tyler? Um, not much, just finishing, uh, I would say both. It's unconditioned and it's conditioned because there we go. Sure. So we water the seed of Buddha nature, but the seed of Buddha nature is there as a as a potential, as a seed. I go beyond that. I would say I like the Buddha nature as the ground, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, yeah. And then seeds of you know uh, how we how we show up in the world mm-hmm. are in that ground, mm-hmm. but. Um, and and I do think that, but I think if you look at the history of Buddhism, you can find both. You yeah. can find the yeah. understanding that Buddha nature is one of the seeds, and you can find understanding that Buddha nature is the ground. Personally, um, I find this teaching that um, it's there no matter what. Mm-hmm. Very encouraging. I kind of think that Blanche felt that so deeply that it's part of the reason. There's a reason I said she saw the Dharma in people that others within Zen Center couldn't see. There were people who were like, why is, now, not Tygen, of course, but, you know, why is she <laughs> recognizing, you know, this person who's strange, who's working with homeless people on the streets of San Francisco, who doesn't look like the other proper Zen students. Mm-hmm. She recognized that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for your talk. Um, Could you say your name again? Sure, I'm Caroline. Um, and will you speak up some because it's the, the mic is way over here. Okay. Thanks. I'm doing my best. Um, I'm wondering about ambiguity. Like we often have good intentions, and especially in environmentalism or things like that. And I have a feeling of like there's just so much that we don't know as basically a, a young culture that's very confused about many things. And I wonder how practice relates to that or can offer some kind of guidance or place of understanding when it's like, I think this would be, yeah, just with your examples, like I think this would be a good plant to destroy or pull, but I don't actually understand what's the complex relationship or I think fire is destroying this, but it turns out in Native traditional knowledge, fire is regularly used and it actually supports that plant. It just disappears for a little while and then comes back, things like that. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts. No, it's a great, great question. 
Uh, there's a talk that I've given quite a bit within Unitarian Universalist congregations on uh, Buddhist practices for resilience and renewal. And one of the ones that I offer, I have five practices, all kind of very easy. <laughs> you don't have to go sit Zaza to do these practices. And one is don't know moment, like recognizing that we don't know. And I, I, I actually think that this don't know mind can include that we don't know the future. Yes, it looks grim, but we don't know. We don't know what may appear in this world. And that that's, there's a humility in this understanding that we never have the full picture. We can't have the full picture, like you said. And Katagiri actually said this. He, that he wrote a book, or he, a book of his talks was put together that um, is, is actually called We Have to Say Something, right? Yes, the, the world is far beyond what we can know or speak about, and we have to say something. And we can never fully know, you know, is that a weed or, or you know, is that something I, I should pull up or water? But we can have a sense. We can have a feeling for it, I would say. Like, will, is this something that leads to freedom and compassion and wisdom? Does it taste like that? Does it have a scent of that? Well, that's probably something worth watering. You know, and maybe later on you're like, mm, I thought it was, but maybe I have to prune this, actually. So I think it's a, we do our best in, in a world that we can only ever partially, only partially understand. But to be, uh, to not speak, to not act is also an action, right? So we have to, we have to do our best right in the middle of what we don't know. Like I knew for me that to do this work of protecting these rare plant populations, even though many people might think, oh, that's ridiculous to put in that kind of effort for one species. But I knew in my heart that, that uh, it was from a place of love and that I could never know this is what we say in the world of endangered species work. You can never know how a particular plant or animal might hold the key to some great good for the world. And so we have to work to protect them. So that's how I knew that that was the action that I wanted. I don't know, does that help? Does anything come up for you from that? Yeah, it sounds like you're talking more about like what's motivating the action than what specifically the action is, like being in touch with like is there love and then not only that, but does does when I water this, does it lead? When I you might not know at the time you water it, right? But does that lead to to goodness in the world, to a to interconnection, to compassion, to wisdom? Um, you'll find out. I love these questions. I feel like they're very deep. Nicholas, grateful. Hi. Thank you so much for a beautiful talk. Um, I'm not sure how to verbalize all this, but um, I'll start with um, that you mentioned we come from seeds, <laughs> which I love. And 
the last few years in my practice, I have been reflecting about that um, that I am part of nature, right? and that <clears throat> as a human with a mind, I've often felt very dislocated from nature and really not considered myself a part of nature because I'm in control. <laughs> I'm, I'm the one making choices. And so it's great sometimes for me to think of myself as, as a tree, you know, like and, and as plants and they, they know how to live, right? They know how to grow. They know how to blossom. They know how to die. Some of them know how to come back, but it's, and when I think of myself as part of that, um, when I identify with that inherent wisdom, it makes it easier for me to let go and think, well, what am I really about? What, what am I, you know, what am I really able to do? Because all I have to do is, as you said earlier in your talk, is cultivate conditions, right, for my inherent seed to manifest how it's going to manifest you know and it's going to manifest that way whether i you know i have very little control over that you know destiny of that mm -hmm. and so yeah it's just it's it can be very relieving to me to reflect on that i was thinking about that here talk during your talk, and um, thank you. I think you've just demonstrated uh, a fruit of the practice to continue the botanical <laughs> illusions. Uh, that, uh, and I, you know, I had a similar feeling as a young person of separation from the world that actually felt very painful to me. I, I knew it was probably illusory. <laughs> It's obvious from a even from a scientific perspective, right? It's an illusion, but it felt so real, and it was part of what really took me into practice. And I love that you. I used to say, I kind of think we, you know, how we put ourselves at the very top of the evolutionary heap. Mm -hmm. um, that actually, if you think about what plants can do, that they that they can photosynthesize, mm -hmm. that they can take light. And turn it into matter. I mean, maybe they're the top of the evolutionary heap, and we're we're still in progress. <laughs> um, so, uh, and the the image of the tree actually feels very Taoist to me, right? To just trust the the showing up, the branches, the leaves. The, so. Uh, yeah, it's really lovely. And, you know, also it's true in our body, too. All the miraculous things our bodies do every moment we're, we're breathing. And we have nothing to do with it. Yeah. You know, I seriously cut my finger a few years ago. Like, I just bandaged it up and I didn't look at it again. And when I took the bandage off, it was all knitted back together. And I'm like, I don't do that. <laughs> I have nothing to do with this. You know, and it just yeah. was really kind of cool. Yeah, so. yeah. No, I, I sometimes think that, like, how is it that this is all still working 59 <laughs> years after it came into the world? Yeah. Pretty yeah. interesting. Online, we have Bryant, okay. and then after that, Yozon. So, Bryant, yeah. I will spotlight you. 
Brian, are you there? Are you able to hear? It looks Maybe like we'll Brian, Brian, oh, there. Yeah, I was having difficulty unmuting myself. <laughs> um, so thank you. Can you hear me all? We can hear you. Um, wonderful, wonderful talk. Uh, and um, it felt like I was watching this talk grow from the seed of the idea about seeds into this beautiful plant of a Dharma talk. Um, and I think it's very important. Uh, everything, I guess my comment is more just praise. I don't really have uh, a question or, and any observation I would have made you or others have made already that um, all of our, I guess, I would add that uh, in terms of Buddha nature, you know, I understand it in terms of emptiness, but I think the importance of understanding emptiness is the idea that everything is changeable and everything is workable. And that brings in the very high importance of our actions, our, our thoughts, our speech and our, our bodily actions. And, you know, the people that go out in the fields and collect seeds, you know, uh, highly important, and you just don't know what ripple effects uh, that might have, not only for those particular seeds collected, but, you know, when you tell someone, oh, I'm going to go pl uh, collect seeds, uh, that plants a seed in their mind that, oh, that's a thing that people do, and you never know what ripple effects uh, in a positive nature can grow from that. Um, I had a teacher once very uh, eloquently described karma as growth. Uh, you know, that we, we through an initial thought or a, a, a word or an action, we plant a seed and we, we grow a habit. And, you know, I see the work that you're doing as a botanist and, and uh, the wonderful work that so many people I'll never know. Uh, that, I guess that's my faith that, uh, beyond the world of headlines that that sort of give you a doom and gloom feeling about the world, I have an un, unbreakable faith because I've met people uh, that there are thousands of people doing really good work in the world uh, that are helping to repair the world while others are trying to, uh, you know, just be selfishly greedy and not care for the world. And my hope is that there's an overwhelming preponderance of of good intended people uh, in this world doing that work. I had two relatives in Wisconsin that owned 50 acres and they did conservation work there and they taught me conservation work. I've done seed collecting, I've done burning, uh, controlled burns, uh, etc. And, you know, I really learned firsthand um, the amazing um, reward it felt I felt so connected you know to the earth I, I, as as a citizen of Chicago and etc there's it's very easy to think of ourselves as divorced from the literal earth that we stand on and so I think it's a very valuable thing anytime something reconnects us with a feeling or an idea that we literally are born from the mother of earth and we need to care for her. So I'm just going to shut up now, but that, those were some of my thoughts and thank you for an excellent talk. Thank you. Actually, you know, I love uh, quite a bit of what you said and, and two things come to mind, actually two books 
that um, have been important for me. Uh, one is, and now I'm forgetting the name. It's one. It's one of Paul Hawkins' books. It's the one. Does anyone remember the one where he goes around and he realizes how many thousands upon thousands of organizations and people are actually doing this work of repairing the world? Does anybody remember what that's called? Oh, it'll come to me. I, it's um, it's what, a. What was the author? Paul Hawkins, who was actually a Zen student. He used to live at San Francisco Zen Center. Yeah, I think I think I have that book in my library, but yeah, I maybe one of the people online can Google it and let us know. Um, uh, but uh, it's called something. Uh, that's not coming to me. But then the other book that comes to mind is, uh, you know, uh, one. It's a book about. It's called uh, the Green Boat, and it's actually about this question of environmental despair. And the the sort of answer that this person has is the best antidote to despair is to do something. And the more embodied that thing is, the better. So burning a prairie, planting seeds, collecting seeds, cleaning up a river, like actually putting your body there is so encouraging. So I'll just offer that as a potential prescription for, uh, for environmental despair, uh, that, that um, it's odd how something like that can make such a difference. And for me, being in places that are relatively whole is an important part of um, an antidote as well. I almost remember that Paul Hawkins book. I'm, I'm counting on you online, people. Yours on is up, I think. Okay, thank you. Um, on. There you go. Good morning. Um, unfortunately, it turns out there are a number of Paul Hawkins that turn up when you quickly Google the name. I can't remember the name of the book either, so somebody will have, else will have to do it. Thank you so much uh, for this talk. Um, in your last comments and earlier in the talk, uh, the word despair came up. And then in Bryant's comments, the word faith came up. And um, I just wanted to raise here because I've found it helpful over the years. Um, and I... And others may as well. Um, one of my, <laughs> one of my favorite lines from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And, uh, I'm reminded now that, uh, Suzuki Roshi was always saying the most important thing, the most important thing. There are hundreds of those in, and uh, I think they're all my favorite lines. Um, that aside, um, you know, he, there's something to the effect of, of whether the sun rises in the east or the sun rises in the west. A bodhisattva keeps moving in the same direction. Um, and, um, I think this is really important for us. And elsewhere, he has a similar idea. He talks, he talks about the idea of moving down a track and just keeping moving in the same direction. And I think for me, um, I've come to feel that that track is practice. And, and with, with that understanding, I, am able to the extent that I can um, uh, embody, perform those things that I've learned from my teachers and in my tradition. And as a consequence, um, I mean, this is not a, you know, it's not bulletproof by any, by any means, you know, despair and faith come and go, but taking, taking, um, 
taking things outside of the realm of utilitarian calculation. Will I succeed or not? Um, you, you know, that can become such a burden. Um, and if you can set your, that, uh, calculation aside and just attend to your practice, then you can just follow, follow your heart the way that you were explaining before. And so I just wanted to raise that because, um, I think it's helpful that, that way. Thank you. Thank you. I was going to ask you what you thought was that, what was that way of the Bodhisattva, regardless of west or east, where the sun rises, but I think you said, so thank you. It was beautiful. I see David Weiner. Let's see if we can get you on the camera. Uh, a couple of things, if I may. <laughs> One, if you can, maybe later on, or maybe for the whole group. Told us and again the name of Blanche's book and mm. Darlene's book. Mm -hmm. um, yes, and I, I would I like to hear no looks, especially since I work in hospice. Ah, yeah. So for especially Darlene's book, I'm mm -hmm. interested in. But one thing that uh, before I started practicing zazen, I was a indigenous Blackfoot pipe carrier mm -hmm. or shaman, mm -hmm. and I think what's what I I feel and especially recently for me. What I feel is missing a little bit in my Zen practice is what I felt when I was doing the Blackfoot practice, and that is harmony. Mm -hmm. And that the the Blackfoot approach was to be in harmony with the natural world. Do you see that as something that is actually manifest in Buddhism also? To be in harmony. That, you know, it wasn't if something went wrong, it was not because the earth was acting violently against us, it's because we were out of harmony with the earth. Mm -hmm. And so it was incumbent upon us to find how we had to come out of harmony. And so I'd like to get your views on that just from a Buddhist perspective. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I would say that this is absolutely a way of harmony. That, um, and I mean, just in a very practical way, that when a person has a regular practice of zazen, I believe we are actually more likely to manifest harmony mm -hmm. in how we are in mm -hmm. the world, mm -hmm. and more likely to cause less trouble. <laughs> and uh, so, for me, I would, and you know, I think about the uh, two things come to mind in terms of that question. One is. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Zenju Earthland Manual's book, uh, The Shamanic Bones of Zen, no. but it's a really important book. She's an, she's an extraordinary teacher. She's actually in this lineage. She's a black woman and um, who also is very steeped in African and Native American traditions. And um, that book makes quite the case that, um, that you know, Zen isn't up here, actually. Yeah. Zen is in, like our rituals are actually shamanic rituals of connection and harmony. Mm -hmm. So um, that might be an interesting book for you or others who are I'm interested. Not in What's the name of the book? Um, it's called The Shamanic Bones of Zen. And I should just say that uh, we have a Friday morning discussion group after Friday morning Zazen online where we've been reading through. Or also a wonderful book called The Way of Tenderness. Oh, I love that book. Yeah, yeah which was kind of one of her first, which is on, um, what is it? The uh, uh, Awakening Through Race, Gender, and Sexuality. So we've been yeah. reading through that. We're almost finished mm -hmm. Friday mornings, and everybody's welcome to come to that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, she's she's really uh, she's an important teacher these days. That's it. Um, so the two books that you asked about, one, Zen, uh, uh, Blanche Hartman's book is called Seeds for a Boundless Life. Seeds for a Boundless, Boundless Life. And, um, and Darlene's, Darlene wrote a number of books. Um, and um, the, uh, the one that I find that I use the most in my work is called Turning Suffering Inside Out. Okay. And um, it's been republished under a slightly different name, so you might have to just like go to Amazon, put in her name, and you'll find her books. But um, I, I don't know anybody who's written as honestly about the experience of chronic pain and illness. Quite, quite. I feel like she's a great example of taking what what is within Zen and really bringing it to the the. The great intensity of human suffering that is part of the corporal level. Exactly. Yeah. The turning suffering inside out. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the things she said at a uh, gathering that I was attending that were mostly uh, Zen priests. She said, Well, you know, when I ordained as a priest, I realized I now had a a sticky note on my forehead that I couldn't see that said, Bring your suffering here. I think anybody who's been in a in a in a role uh, will understand that when you're suffering here. Prue's hand is up, and I think Prue has found the the book, the Paul Hawking book. Oh, good. Thank you. I'm not sure, but it sounds similar to what you're saying. Um, Reanimation, ending the climate crisis in one generation. It talks no, about it. Isn't that isn't it? It's one. Where he goes around and he finds, uh, he's been getting, actually, it's an interesting story. So he'd go around speaking here and there, you know, like pioneers, conferences, and stuff like that. And he started collecting um, uh, people's uh, business cards. And he realized that he had this enormous stack of business cards from around the world. Of, and one of the things he talks about, actually, is um, uh, women led and indigenous led uh, movements as being so important. We'll find out. I'll tell Tygen. He'll tell everybody else. Um, but that's the right Paul Hawken, but it's an earlier book. It's so close. This is the trouble with, you know, minds. <laughs> Would it be Drawdown? What's that? Always Drawdown? Mm-hmm. Nope. Keep working on it. I'll stop. <laughs> In the room, always has a question. So let me re-spotlight... Um, you do a really great job model. of this. I'm so impressed. It's, it's a new it. technology that we're trying. Thank it's you. Very Thank good. you. Always. Please. Nice to meet you. First day. First day? Yeah. Whoa. Okay. So yeah. that story about Blanche, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the stories. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, Question two part of it. The first one was the story made me really emotional about the seeds. Um, could you reiterate where it's from and how I could research more about it? Oh, the Ponca story, the story of the Ponca red corn, or the story I told? The story you told. Um, so actually, it's in, a, it's in a book that I edited called Wild Branch. Um, and it's a, it's um, a, an anthology of environmental and place based writing. And if so, if you look up Wild Branch, yeah. you'll be able to find that story. 
Is that the Leningrad story? The, well, it's the Leningrad story is part of it. Also, the story of my collecting the seeds and Ariadne Codium, oh, quite a bit. There's kind of the center of what I said today was from that essay. So if you look up Wild Branch, you should probably find it. It's still in print. University of Utah Press. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the second part of it was a, the, the, if the mind is a land where we water happiness, happiness blossoms, what does one do? I'm new to this. So, what, uh, what does one do when there are weeds that keep showing up that are deeply rooted, maybe from like childhood mm -hmm. beliefs that lead to suffering? Um, that simultaneously may exist with the happiness, but sometimes they show up and maybe take over, maybe feed more than the happiness. That made any sense? It does. And I will say, I think that um, his description there is a little bit simplistic, um, you know, because I'm sure you've all had experiences where you are um, doing your best to water the seeds of goodness. And, and all these other things are growing and like manifesting in your life that are really hard and that really involve a lot of suffering. You know, our practice is to be willing to be present and compassionate for everything that grows within us. And that in itself is healing. It's an odd thing, but we don't have to actually rip up all that stuff. We can, if we are willing to be with it, it, in Tibetan Buddhism, I think they talk about self-liberation, that like that they will liberate themselves, that those difficulties, those mm -hmm. pains, those traumas, if you can be present with them, you actually, uh, this is a sort of faith, it's, you have to have faith that this is yeah. true, but I have found this to be true in my life, that if I, am, if I can be present with my suffering, the suffering itself will, um, will shift. And so, you know, you'll have to find out if that's true for you, but that's been true for me, that this practice is a healing practice. It truly is. Can so. I add something to that? Please. It's just that a big part of Zazen is that that stuff comes up. And for our service, we chant all our ancient twisted karma from beginning us freed, hate, and delusion, and now fully avowed. We, we witness and become intimate with all of our, stuff. all the things we hold, all the stuff, yeah, that's the technical term, yeah, um, and, and, and that does change it, so just to be willing to be present, and, and then get to know and become intimate with all of the confusion, and the grasping, and the anger, and so forth. Does that mean, like, under, trying to dissect it in the moment, or is it more of, this is coming up, I accept this is coming up. Yes. And try to just... It's not about figuring it out, although we have many therapists here who might be able to help you. That's a valuable part of Western Buddhism. But also, uh, just to be present with it and be with it and be intimate with all of the stuff. It, it, and, and keep coming back to it, and it does change. And there's a, there's a strange gift within that, too. And I, again, I'm speaking from direct experience, that if you are able to be with your own suffering, you can be with the suffering of others. So it becomes a gift. 
you know, sometimes someone will tell me something shocking and be like, nobody's been willing to like actually hear this and freak out. And I'm like, I'm not going to freak out. I've been to hell and back a few times. I can be with this. And that's a huge gift that you can offer others. If you're, you know, why we run from the suffering of others is because it, we don't want to feel our own in the face of their suffering. But if we can, if we can learn to be compassionate and patient with our own suffering, we can be compassionate and patient with the suffering of others. And that's like, that's a fantastic, fantastic gift that we can offer the world. So, yes. I, I'm a little worried about everybody's legs. So if you need to do anything, I mean, I love these questions. So I'm happy to answer them but or be in conversation. But please move to whatever position will take care of yourself. I'm not interested in increasing suffering. In that <laughs> well, my name is Jean, and this is also my first time here. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for, the, for your wise and beautiful dharma. Um, and could you speak up? Oh, certainly. Line? Certainly. I... I can sit with my suffering, but but I want it to be over. <laughs> I want it to be fixed. I, I want people who are not cooperating to cooperate, uh, to ease my own pain and maybe theirs. Um, so the hardest thing for me to, is to understand and accept that I can sit with this today, but it might come back tomorrow or next week, and I don't have the power to fix it. How do you advise people to live with that kind of suffering? That's a really deep question. And I mean, I think that Taigen made a good point that um, one of the things we've recognized in Western Buddhism is that sometimes we need multiple modalities to work with our suffering. So, you know, some of those are bodily modalities. Somebody has trauma. You know, there may be somatic practices that are helpful. Um, there's therapy, there's all that. But in terms of the Dharma itself, um, and actually I'm going to go back to this, uh, this idea of the ground of our being, the storehouse consciousness, right? That um, because, of, because of causes and conditions, uh, certain kinds of patterns, certain kinds of habits, certain kinds of sufferings will keep coming up. They'll keep growing in us and if but if we're i'm trying to think if i can think of a way to describe this um perhaps you've been in a situation as i was talking about where someone deeply heard you when you when you spoke about your suffering really heard you was really present with you and that very that presence itself heals so if you can be that presence for yourself, rather than the reactive one, the one that sees and loves this person who is suffering, that's, that's how we practice. And, and to know that, yes, it's going, things are going to keep growing. They're going to keep coming up. Yes. Adding on to that, Joan Halifax, who runs a hospice training out of her uh, her monastery, if I may say, in Santa Fe, talks about 
coming in and looking and coming in with no agenda. And what often when we have suffering, we come in with the agenda, I'm going to end the suffering. <laughs> so things is to come in with no agenda and to bear witness. Bear witness, that's right. Just bear witness and be with it. And that's as a chaplain, that's my job, is to come in and just bear witness. I'm not there to fix, I'm there to watch. Thank you for adding that. That's actually perfect. Yeah. And, yeah. And, then, and then maybe, maybe out of your own mind, Will come an appropriate answer, mm -hmm. but, the, but that's not the that's not the goal. The goal is to bear witness and come with no agenda. And I offer that to you. Thank you. I really am worried about people's um, legs. Should we should we end? Well, um, would, I'd be happy to keep. I mean, I can. We're past our usual and, time, yeah. and we're not going to have temple cleaning. Oh, we, we will have a service though. Uh -huh. um, so that's coming up in, in announcements. But um, now, what, having mentioned here in person today, uh, I don't want to cut off the possibility of people talking. So, anybody who needs to just stand up at your place for a little bit, you're welcome to. Uh, but um, is anybody, one, one last comment or question, online or in person? I just want to check. Nilsan, did you did you raise your hand again, or was that just from from before? No, I think you're muted now, Nilsan. Any any? Oh, uh, am I there? You yes. Are. Yes. I'm sorry. Um, was having trouble. I believe the book, the title that we're looking for is Blessed Unrest. And That's I think it, it came out we in about oh, so Blessed... 2000. Yes. Blessed Unrest is the name of the book by Paul Hawken. H-A-W-K-E-N. I feel like I should send you all a bibliography at the end of this talk. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've named about 10 books. Uh, Jan had a, had a question. We'll end with that. Okay. It, it, it's not a question, and I've told this story before, but uh, there's a, a woman who's famous in uh, the black movement from before, not, not the recent one. And her first name is Ruby, and I can't remember her last name. Um, Hines, maybe. I'm just not sure what her last name is. Ruby D? No, not Ruby D. Ruby D's an actress. Well, it's not the No, I don't think it's the same one. But um, anyway, um, she was, she was part of, she was part of a, a, a protest that was going on. And um, there was a young man that was with her. And somebody came up to him and uh, it was a, you know, it was a white racist. And he said, I'm just going to blast you straight to hell. And he had a gun. And the young man who was very intent upon being in a movement that was greater than himself and who really wanted to devote his life to this movement, he said, okay, he said, Tonight, hell will be integrated. Wow. <laughs> and she was so impressed with that kind of courage that she became a really important person in the black movement. Mm -hmm. I, I really apologize that I can't think of her name. Thank you. That, was, that was the seed that was planted in her 
that led to her career for the rest of her life. Thank you. And then I have to close with a story for Blanche. <laughs> okay. Because okay. she was she was an activist. She went to demonstrations. She was you know she was a communist. Uh, but she went to an anti-war protest, and there was a line of soldiers with rifles uh, in front of her, and she walked up to one of them. And she, I think she may have been doing the thing of putting a flower in his kind of something. Yeah. But then she looked at him, and she looked in his eyes, and she saw herself. Yeah. And she says, that's what she heard to say. And online, we just found out, Ruby Bridges. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that story of Blanche. I, I, I remember her telling that. Yeah.